This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to this special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal. I'm joined today by Fraser Nelson and Matthew Goodwin. Fraser, you wrote your column this week about how the UK's uh, post-Brexit model was supposed to be about ending cheap labour coming from abroad. Tell us, why has this changed and what are the problems facing the UK workforce? Well, I was um, struck uh, just looking at a couple of things. Sometimes in journalism, you come across stories in the small print, which when you look at them, you think, well, this is this truly can't be right. This is just so of such big importance. Now, to me, it was the Department of Work and Pensions forecasts for the welfare caseload for the next uh, five years. Now, they're an amazing document, actually. They estimate how many people are going to be on sickness benefit and unemployment benefit, etc., and how much this is all going to cost. Now, over the last few years, their view of the next five years has changed a lot, moving from a situation where initially they thought that we weren't really going to have any serious increase in anybody in sickness benefits. Now we think we're going to have absolutely huge. We're talking something like two and a half thousand people a week signing on to sickness benefits, twice the rate it was pre-pandemic with no end in sight, leading to a huge increase in the caseload. Now, this bites a huge chunk out of the workforce. And that leads me to the other forecast, which again, wasn't announced by the government. The Office for Budget Responsibility, it reckons there, it is now said that it has given up any hope that Brexit would cut immigration numbers. It's saying this is now um, obviously not what the government wants to do. And it assumes there's going to be a quarter of a million people almost every single year for the foreseeable future. I spent a good amount of time when the Coffeehouse blog first set up in the, um, the late noughties, chastising the Labour government for this. I was saying it was deplorable how they were keeping, um, at the time, three million people on out-of-work benefits and covering it up by immigration. Now, I'm not anti-immigration at all. Um, I'm quite pro-immigration, um, and um, to, to the extent where I'm routinely teased in the comments section of the spectator, teased is putting it politely, about my cosmopolitan, kale-munching, pro-immigration views. But nonetheless, it's quite clear to me that what is happening here is that the Tories are doing what I castigated Labour for doing, and that is giving up on the hard task of welfare reform, accepting that we're going to have 5 million, not 3 million people, on that to work benefits for the foreseeable future. And therefore, the only chance of getting economic growth is to import Labour, as, la- as the Labour Party once did when in government. Now, my problem with this is that I am a free marketeer, and I believe in... The nation-state is a kind of economic unit. I think companies should be forced to pay more, to lure people off welfare, to be really inventive. If they can't find workers, they shouldn't be crying for the government to send the migrants. They should be doing what they can to take people, get people into the care homes rather than complain that they want more Lithuanians for the care home jobs. Boris Johnson tried to do that for a while, but Sunak has given up. So to me, this is a rather dismaying, almost um, devastating vision of the future, a future where we're effectively giving up on 5 million people in benefits and importing our way out of the problem. 
Um, Matt, I mean, Fraser mentions in his column, he talks about welfare and how actually this could be a conspiracy of silence between the two main parties. The Tories don't want to draw attention to their failures. Labour have traditionally maybe struggled with welfare regarding high numbers as a problem. Do you think that on welfare and Brexit as a whole and migration, there is perhaps a kind of sense of a, a conspiracy of silence of parties not being able to talk about it? And do you think there's space for another party to come along and make these issues once again? Well, I think there's certainly a conspiracy of silence. When I tweeted the stats from Fraser's column this afternoon, you know, the reason they've gone viral is because people don't really understand what's happening. And just a few of those stats to to bring the piece to light. Fraser points out that we're now spending £2 billion every week on um, welfare for working age people that we've spent around 30 to £35 billion since Rishi Sunak became Chancellor and that overall welfare spending is up by about 52% since before the COVID pandemic. And I actually think this is the beginning of the arrival of statistics that are really going to, I think, completely transform our political debate. I don't agree with the OBR, for instance, that we're going to try and fill this hole by maintaining net migration levels at a quarter of a million Almost everybody I'm speaking to in government at the moment is pretty much in agreement that net migration is going to increase at the end of May from where it is currently at around 504,000 to potentially somewhere in the range of 700, 800,000. And these are, you know, very credible people who are forecasting, you know, this big increase in, in overall net migration, which is not only going to have enormous political effects for the Conservatives, I don't really buy the argument that ultimately people just wanted control. I think they wanted much lower numbers overall. But it's also really underlining just how broken our political economy has begun has become. I completely agree with Fraser that you know a big a big part of, of the politics of the last 10 years was was really about trying to build a different economy where business and society was really incentivized to invest in you know, changing educational pathways and investing in British workers. And, and what's clear is that really that's not that's not really been happening. And what we've got now is an economy that, you know, like a drug addict, is completely hooked on cheap migrant labour. And, and a large part of that now is not even really contributing so much to the labour market as people think. A big part of that is also dependence of international students, which we can discuss it another time. So I think what we've got here is is a is a really big problem. We've got a, a millions of people up to 5 million more people in the coming years who are not really going to be having the sort of sense of meaning and dignity in their lives that will come through work and responsibility and neither party are really talking about that or why we're still hooked on migration. So I think this is going to have some considerable downstream effects. It might not be a new party. It might just be apathy. And I you know, would point to what we're seeing at the local elections, for example. It may just be that lots of voters in those red wall areas decide that, you know what, actually the Conservatives aren't interested in building this new political economy. Uh, and therefore, I'm just going to sit this one out. That may be just as likely an outcome as, as, as voters perhaps, you know, turning, turning to somebody else. There doesn't seem to be much of a, a sort of credible, viable alternative at the moment. But these numbers, you know, make no mistake, these numbers are going to become even more dramatic in the years ahead. That was one of the, um, perhaps to me the, the most striking thing that the Tories aren't talking anymore 
about using Brexit to instigate economic change or a new social settlement. And I think this is why they, to me, risk simply losing the Brexit voters. Those Brexit voters were torn away from the Labour Party. They were interested in the Conservatives. They were interested in being told a new project, a new story, and that's something else to to believe in, as it were, if they'd ever given up in, in, in Labour. And the Tories just ended up with nothing to say. It just fizzled out. Now, there was, of course, a, a way of, of saying, look, Britain is, by some measures, the least automated country in the world. So why don't we force the employers to automate more? So why, why do we have people standing on rubbish dumps in Britain, sorting out different sort of rubbish in, in the skips? That can be done by machines now. So why don't we simply save the humans for higher task, higher paid jobs? That's one of Britain's big problems that we've got. Not that we've got too many machines. It's the opposite. We've got too many humans doing low paid jobs that machines could be doing. Now, of course, this is um, companies are doing this because economically, because they can. For as long as you can get access to a endless supply of um, low-cost labour, then you haven't really got the incentive to invest in the training, to invest in the automation, to do the other things that would move us to a higher wage model. Now, after during the Brexit campaign, by the way. Everybody, leave and remain, assumed that Brexit would be significant costs cut in immigration. If you look at all of the economic models about breakfast, no, sorry. If you look at all, all of the economic models about Brexit, um, and the ones that said that Britain would be poorer than it otherwise would be in 30 years' time, a lot of that was usually down to the fact that immigration was going to be cut. Fewer heads, therefore fewer GDP. When you looked at GDP per head, Brexit would be something different. Even Stuart Rose himself, when he was in the Remain campaign, um, famously made the mistake of saying, yes, shorter labour availability will push up wages, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Of course, spoken like a true a corporatist, most Brexit voters did think it was a good thing. And that's what they thought they were midway through getting. But look at what's happening now. The cost of living crisis uh, has given cover for the sharpest decrease in real-term wages in living memory. So wages have not gone up. They've gone down in real terms by the worst amount ever. I've kept my eye on the care homes, who I thought were the most egregious player in this. And the care homes were, you know, they, they've got a business model based on paying people low wages, unskilled wages for skilled work, paying them less than they'd get in the supermarkets. Now, if you look at what's happened since the Brexit vote, the, um, the, the care home pay relative to the average salary has actually gone down rather than up. So the care homes who were already getting away with paying disgracefully low salaries are now paying even more disgracefully low salaries. So the kind of social change or economic change which I had thought that Brexit was an opportunity to bring simply isn't happening. And let's remind ourselves that I, I was a convert to Brexit. I am a Europhile. I remain a very passionate Europhile. I came to believe that the EU was becoming a source of instability in Europe and making its constituent countries poorer and less free. But I never thought Brexit itself would improve the economy or would make Britain richer. I thought it would give tools which, if used properly, could come up with a better settlement. Now, it seems that we simply are not using these tools properly. Perhaps a reminder that Brexit was not a Conservative Party scheme. It was done in spite of the Conservative Party, who campaigned against it. Now, sure, you can say that Rishi Sunak was a Brexiteer, but you do not hear him talk very much about the opportunities of Brexit. It doesn't seem to see as if he seriously believes that there are any. In which case, 
Why should all of these ex-Labour Brexiteers stay with the Conservative Party if the Conservatives themselves don't think there's a project still to defend? Yes, I mean, that's the, that's the key question, I think, is um, what does it mean if Richard United doesn't use the tools of Brexit? What does that mean for public support of Brexit? I see in polls that, you know, Rejoin is now increasing in popularity, etc. What does it mean if Richard United doesn't really try and address and tackle this economic model? Well, I don't think it's even just about Rishi Sunak. I think even under Boris Johnson, you saw a commitment to liberalising the migration system and tweaking policy in a way that would genuinely shock the large number of Brexit voters who are not what we might call liberal leavers, who are more culturally conservative. I mean, it was Boris Johnson's government, we tend to forget, which reduced the salary thresholds to as low as £20,000 in some sectors, well below the national uh, average wage. It was Johnson's government that removed the requirement for British companies to advertise jobs in Britain first. And I think many Conservative voters have gradually woken up to the fact that this party that they thought was going to do something interesting post-Brexit has really not done really anything uh, interesting at all. And that many of the things they find deeply alarming are only going to accelerate. I've just finished reading a report by the Nuffield Foundation looking at projections of migration uh, between now and 2041. And okay, you know, take demographic projections with a pinch of salt. But they estimate that by 2041, the population will grow by uh, another 5 million people, you know, approximately, you know, something equivalent to about five Birmingham's. There's no long-term plan for what that means in terms of housing, in terms of public services. And even though we have listened to the Conservatives trying to sell this new immigration policy as high-skill immigration, the reality, not just in social care, but many other parts of the economy, is that this is really the opposite of high-skill migration. So if you are running a corporation, company, you're not incentivized really, to, to innovate. You're not incentivized to invest and upskill domestic workers. And, you know, Fraser rightly makes the point in many of his pieces that, you know, for the first time in a long time, we are one of the countries in, in you know, in Europe and, and, and the West that doesn't have a sort of nasty populist party. And I think, you know, that it's a great place for Britain to be post-Brexit. But if, if, these, if these trends continue at the rate at which they're forecast to continue, I just don't think that is going to be where we are in a, in a few years' time. Because I think if, even if you look at the local elections this week, if you look at the 2019 Conservative voters who have abandoned the party, some of the polling there suggests that their top two reasons for doing so, one was the cost of living and, and the economy, which is everybody's dominant issue. But the second was immigration, feeling that immigration was too high. And if you look at who voted for Boris Johnson and who would potentially be voting for Rishi Sunak at the next election, their priorities are the economy, then immigration, then the National Health Service. So, you know, this issue is not going anywhere anytime soon. And I I think consistently the party has looked very out of step with the people that have been voting for it, not just in 2019, but since the since the Brexit referendum. And unless they come up with a more interesting response to this, and and quite urgently, I don't think it matters what they do with the small boats. I don't think it matters whether inflation falls. As, As I suspect we'll see at the end of May when we get the new net migration figures. And if they are anywhere near as close to what I'm being told they're going to be, I think people are going to be deeply shocked. I think people will think, well, hang on a minute, this is a party that for 13 years has been saying it's going to lower the numbers 
but we'll go from a position of in where we were in 2010, 2011 under David Cameron of having net migration around 200, 230,000 to potentially having it somewhere between 600,000 and maybe 750,000. And I just don't think that's going to be a sustainable place for a Conservative Party to be. You can, you can argue that, that these figures are going to be complicated by Ukrainian refugees, the Hong Kong Chinese, the, uh, some of the, to an extent, some of the unwinding of the lockdown effects, etc. But I mean, we will hear a lot of that when new figures come out, as they will in a couple of weeks. But I don't think anybody can argue that the long-term trend is significantly up. I mean, Matt's um, talking about the, the Nuffield Foundation. You can look, talk about the OBR. I mean, this is what really matters. So I, I think I is, I'm not really surprised to see in the local election results that we're getting um, yesterday that the biggest swing towards Labour seemed to come in the Brexit voting areas. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, I thought there was quite something significant in there. These are the people who are gravitating back to Labour, having decided there's actually no Brexit project. When you think about how the SNP won over people in the 2014 referendum, and it kept them there because there was a real sense of project emission. Okay, you've come over for the first time to our party, and we are going to tell you there absolutely is a cause worth staying and fighting for. That's the opposite to what has happened with the Conservatives. And my, my overall concern here isn't so much that we're going to see too many, too many immigrants. That's not really a concern of mine. I mean, my concern is, is welfare. And right now we've got something like 20% of Liverpool, of Manchester, of um, Birmingham, 25% of Blackpool are in out-of-work benefits, and 50% of Central Blackpool are in out-of-work benefits. These are shocking figures happening in the middle of a worker shortage crisis. This is what is utterly unforgivable. I mean, sure, we've had high unemployment before, but we've never managed to combine mass joblessness with a mass worker shortage. Now, what, how on earth have the Conservatives managed to do this? This strikes me as incompetence of the most culpable kind. And I just, um, I know what I would be saying if it were a Labour government presiding over this. And I don't see why, simply because I'm a, a journalist who tends to favour Conservative governments, I should be any more relaxed about this appalling set of circumstances coming back in even more, even more unforgivable conditions. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots. To celebrate the coronation of King Charles III, you can subscribe to The Spectator and get the next 10 weeks for the price of one. Not only that, but we'll also send you a commemorative Spectator mug absolutely free. To claim this very special offer, go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash crown.